This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Good afternoon, good morning, depending on where and when you are listening. Uh, today's going to be a tough day. There's going to be a lot of tough days ahead. It does very much feel like we're nowhere close to the end of this story, but maybe the, um, the end of the beginning. How's that? Um, I'll just read the piece from sportsnet.ca that published about 90 minutes ago. Uh, This is reaction to a Globe and Meal piece by uh, Robin Doolittle. Uh, Five players have been told by London Police Services to surrender in connection with allegations of a sexual assault in June 2018 on a woman by members of the 2018 Canadian World Junior Hockey Team, the Globe and Mail reported on Wednesday. The players, who have not been charged, have been given an undisclosed deadline to report to London, Ontario Police, the Globe and Mail reported, citing two unnamed sources. It was unclear what would happen if the players did not surrender before the deadline. When contacted Tuesday night for comments, London Police told Sportsnet, quote, We are unable to provide an update at this time. When there is further information to share regarding this investigation, we will be in contact with media outlets, end quote. Okay, so there's, uh, there's a lot here, obviously, um, and there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of people wondering and already making assumptions about who the five players are. And I think it would be irresponsible at this point to associate players who have either mispracticed or taken leave to associate them necessarily with this story. I know many of you may look at that and say, well, Merrick used common sense, but when a case is this sensitive um, and this life-changing for everybody involved, I think it is very much the prudent thing to do. Um, Here's what I want to say about this. On a day like this, uh, when we get a story like this, uh, there'll be a lot of anger. There'll be a lot of frustration as well. And I'm not here to tell you where to direct your anger. I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want to tell you where to be angry. Um, I don't want to tell you where to direct your frustration. There's a lot of reasons to be frustrated at all of this, whether it's the London police and why is this investigation taken so long, whether it is Hockey Canada, the roots of this story, whether it is uh, the NHL itself. I'm not going to tell you where to direct your frustration at all. But the one thing that I hope that, everybody listening or watching will do today since everybody, whether they know it or not, knows someone who's the victim of a sexual assault. Spend some time thinking about victims of sexual assaults. Every woman that works in the hockey industry uh, knows someone who's a victim of sexual assault and maybe is a victim of sexual assaults herself as well. Uh, and this story and this part of this story is going to bring up a lot of emotions and bring up a lot of history and bring up a lot of difficult feelings for them, and that's just getting through the day-to-day of doing their job. Uh, I would hope that we would spend some time ourselves thinking about the women in our industry, in the hockey industry, in broadcasting. Really just think about the women in your life. Now, there are plenty of um, both men and women in hockey uh, who have been the victims of sexual assaults. And on a day right now where it's, um, it's easy to let your anger lead, and I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do again, on a day where it's easy to allow your frustration to lead, and again, I'm not telling you what to do. If that's your feelings, that's your feelings, and that's fine. And there are plenty of places to direct your anger. You might want to direct your anger at media 
as well, investigative or otherwise. Um, and I understand all that. I would just hope that you spend some time today, the next few days, thinking about victims of sexual assault, either close friends or people uh, around the hockey community as well. You know, I think of our friend and colleague here at Sportsnet, Eilish Forfar, who's began publicly dealing with, with her story and telling her story of sexual assault when, when she was a teenager um, at the hands of a, of a hockey instructor who's now been incarcerated. Uh, I think about her. I think about a lot of um, other men and women uh, in my orbit that have been the victims of sexual assault as well. All I'm saying is think about the victims on a day like this as much as you want your anger to lead and there's a lot of reasons to be angry about all of this there's a lot of reasons to be angry about the perpetrators once we officially find out who they are so a lot of reasons to be upset at all of it just always i would encourage you in the back of your mind keep in mind all the people that have been affected by this whether you know it or not, specifically women who cover this game, this is going to be a very, very difficult time for them. This is going to be a really emotionally challenging time for them just to do their job. There are some men as well, again, who will find this incredibly challenging just to get through their day, just to get through their job. Take a moment, and again, before you send off... Before you send off an angry tweet to, uh, to a woman who covers an NHL team about why didn't you ask the harder questions, just maybe let compassion lead a little bit or at least let your compassion for these people be part of your story before you send off something nasty, which is just an articulation of your rage. Trust me, I think your rage is legitimate. I think your frustration is legitimate. I just hope that part of your internal dialogue includes a thought or two or three or four or five for the victims of sexual assault. Coming up on today's program, Elliot's going to stop by in hour two. Uh, he's normally kicking off the program today. We have a, a, a lot to get to, and Elliot's at uh, the uh, Winnipeg Jets Toronto Maple Leafs practice this morning. Uh, we'll get to Elliot in hour two. Um, but joining me now is Shana Goldman from the, the Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Shana, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Um, I was mentioning off the top that I, I think right out of the gate, it's probably until we have official word irresponsible to join the absences to the story in the Globe and Mail by Robin Doolittle. Um, but, you know, when you when you saw the news this morning, you know, I kind of positioned it as, you know, this is this is the end of a beginning, you know, um, for this for this story. Uh, as the story now moves along the 2018 World Junior Team, what, what were some of your some of your first thoughts? The first thought was finally, right? This has been a story that's been going on for a long time. And to get that closure, I think, is important for everybody, especially the victims involved in this and any victim of sexual assault to understand there can be closure there. You know, I think some might look at this as a gotcha moment and it's easy to right? Um, this was years ago. These mm. players were kids and you can throw anything like that at the kitchen sink. But at the end of the day, if these players weren't hockey players and they were just people, this would not be the conversation. Um, I think my first thought throughout this entire situation is that it is such a privilege to play hockey as a career. 
It's a privilege to play it at a high level. And if you can get to the highest level, the NHL, that is the biggest privilege. You have to, one, earn it, and two, maintain it. So for me, I look at it and go, this situation has to you know, keep unfolding, whether anybody likes it or not, because these players have to earn their place at the NHL and have to deserve to be here. So it just feels like this is an important situation to just get get closed. Um, not closed, but, you know, get that closure for and to, mm-hmm. you know, help everybody heal from it because there's so much wrong in the world and there's so much wrong in hockey culture that you can't just keep brushing things under the rug. You know, one of the um, one of the things, you know, before you came on, I was I was talking about the people in the industry and, you know, people in and, in and around everybody's life who are either, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, like everyone knows someone who's been the victim of sexual assault or knows someone who knows someone who's been the victim of, of sexual assault. And maybe someone listening right now or watching right now has been the victim of sexual assault themselves. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, where your thoughts go right away when you see a story like, like we saw this morning from uh, from the Globe and Mail, uh, the piece by Robin Doolittle. Um, you know, my, my first thought, as much as there is rage and there is frustration and there is anger and all of that, and all those feelings are very, very legitimate. And I think all those feelings come from a very good and right place. I understand all of it. The point that I was trying to make off the top of the show today was I hope that, you know, tempering all of that anger is, you know, taking some time and thinking about the victims of sexual assault. Thinking about this victim back in 2018 um, in that hotel in London, Ontario, um, with the the 2008 World Junior Team. Um, I think a lot about, you know, my colleagues, um, one of which has started to go public with with her story of sexual assault as a a young hockey player. Um, I think of both the women and men uh, historically in the game of hockey specifically uh, who have been the victims of sexual assault. Um, Listen, I'll tell you what, I think a lot about the women that cover this game um, and how either maybe they've been the victims of or they know someone else who have been the victims of um, and how, you know... How, how much more difficult emotionally a story like this makes their jobs. Who do you think of first, Shana? Yeah, I think of the victims. I think of everybody involved in it. I think of the victims throughout this because there are so many people saying they don't want to see this situation proceed. It was years ago or they don't want to lose their favorite you know, players from their teams, which is small peanuts to yeah. the big situation, really. Um, I think of the women covering this game. It's not easy to do on a daily basis. It's harder for others. And I think of everybody who just, you know, is involved in this situation, right? You think of the fans who want to see the media be more accountable and want to see leagues be more accountable. And they have a point. You know, there's so many people who are angry right now or upset or, you know, they're feeling conflicted emotions right now. And I don't think you can fault anybody for how they feel through this. Um, I just hope it's something that can be channeled in into something, right? It's something that can push for change because that's been the story in hockey in recent years. There's so much below the surface that we don't even know about. There's so much at the surface level that we do know about, and it doesn't get taken seriously because someone's a really good player or, you know, there's a billion-dollar organization standing behind that player to make sure that nothing happens. So, you know, I I think of everybody who maybe didn't get that closure that they needed and didn't get their situation heard because it involved you know, hockey players that get valued for their skill above all else. Um, I hope that, you know, they can take a moment to themselves 
today, throughout this situation to, you know, I hope everybody is just respectful of each other. If you need a moment to take, you know, to take, to understand the situation and mm -hmm. process everything that you get that. And, you know, that there's healing at the end of this for, for everybody involved, you know, whether you're directly, indirectly, or just on the peripherals of it, you know, it, it affects a lot of people. Do you think things are changing? Like, do you feel like I'm, I'm the wrong person to to answer this question? So I'm, I'm asking you, do you feel that things are changing in hockey? And if they are, are they changing fast enough? Or are they still glacially slow? It's glacially slow. No question about it. Um, but I think the fact that these situations aren't being buried like they were before is something, right? The fact that this situation, mm. while it's progressed as slowly as possible with a million roadblocks or, uh, along the way, and it feels like sometimes it's begrudgingly being dealt with. Uh, I mean, you can look at today, this story is not being buried. And you look at the news release that comes out moments later, it's things like that. Um, I don't think hockey's ever gonna be perfect. I don't think the world's ever gonna be perfect. And I think that you're unrealistic to think that's ever going to happen. But I think that there are so many voices persisting in hockey and around it to try to push the sport to be better, to try to hold it accountable. You look at the work of someone like Katie Strang and everything she's doing, it's so important to have her voice and her coverage to constantly inform what's going on, why these situations are wrong, and how we can move forward from them and be better you know, knowing these situations, how we can be better learning from them. So it's slowly, very, very, very slowly progressing, mm -hmm. but it is a progression, I think, from where it's been before. Okay, um, so that is the story of the day. Um, five players have been told by London Police Services uh, to surrender in connection with the allegations of sexual assault going back to June 2018 uh, on a woman by members of the 2018 Canadian World Junior Hockey Team. This according to a, re a report uh, in the Globe and Mail. And again, the uh, uh, comment, London Police giving our organization Sportsnet, quote, we are unable to provide an update at this time. When there is further information to share regarding this investigation, we will be in contact with media outlets. Uh, very much an ongoing story. Uh, I don't know how to shift from that, Shana. I don't know how to pivot from that to something else. Can you save me? Um, I don't think the best host can pivot from something like that. Um, it's going to be as awkward and sloppy as possible, and you are absolutely asking the wrong person for yeah. a smooth transition. Oh, geez. I don't know how to move on to. Okay, then let's talk about hockey. Yay, go sports. Oh, but it's going to be one of those days. Um, all right. Shannon Goldman from the Too Many Men podcast and The Athletic. You know, last night you and I were texting about one thing specifically, and it was about two defensemen, okay? And one of them is Brock Faber. And I think all you know, from the beginning of the season, we've all looked at Brock Faber with awe. Like we're all saying, okay, Connor Bedard's going to run away with the Calder Trophy, but don't forget about Brock Faber and all this. And then Connor Bedard gets injured, and we start to look at Brock Faber even more. But there's someone else who's kind of entered the chat here, and he's a you know teammate of of, uh, uh, of Connor Bedard, and that is Alex Vlasic. Compare contrast for us using the biggest brain that you have, uh, <laughs> these two players, Alex Vlasic and Brock Faber. Okay. So I think one of the biggest differences going into it is the hype around them, right? And it's the pedigree they came into the NHL with. Alex Vlasic was somebody who a lot of people had doubts with based on his play at the college level and coming out of it. Brock Faber 
by yeah. someone that everybody has been hyping up from the second he was drafted. And rightfully so, he earned that. Um, but they get to the NHL level and they're in two different situations. You have Brock Faber who goes to a team known for their defensive stability and you have Alex Vlasic going for a team mm-hmm. that's known for anything but. Um, and neither one is in, an, <laughs> is in an easy position right now because you look at the injuries on Minnesota and the workload that Faber has had to take on. And sometimes it's on his own. You don't have Spurgeon, you've lost Brodeen for chunks of time. And he has been outstanding. He's a big reason why Minnesota can boast that defensive stability in his minutes. He has a positive impact relative to his teammates. He has a positive impact relative to the rest of the league. He legitimately has outstanding numbers in every which way. But Vlasic, it's easy to look at the surface Mm -hmm. and say, hey, he has a 44% expected goal share. That's not very good. But you have to look at it in the context of where he plays. Relative to his teammates, he has a slight, slight positive impact on the Blackhawks' offensive creation in his minutes. Even more so, he has a very strong defensive impact relative to his teammates. And you might say, hey, low bar, and you'd be right. But it's the fact that he's managing the chaos. He does not have an easy workload, and he's still standing out. That's why they're scoring fewer goals in his minutes. The one number that stands out to me that is inflated is that the team has a really high shooting percentage in his minutes, and they actually have a high save percentage. Mm -hmm. It's higher than the save percentage Brock Faber's on the ice for, uh, and that sometimes is out of the defenseman's control. But for me, what really stands out about Vlasic is when you look even deeper below the surface at his microstats and the tracking done at all three zones does a great job uh, helping you picture this. It's how he's moving the puck out of his own zone. It's not just good relative to the Blackhawks, which again, low bar. It stands up around the rest of the league. He's retrieving pucks and he's able to bring the puck out of his own zone with control. That is the modern day defenseman, what you need to be, right? You need to find ways to turn defense Mm -hmm. into offense by retrieving pucks and getting out with possession. And he's doing exactly that. So he's been a spark from the back end that the Blackhawks so, so, so need. And if this is what he's doing in year one in that environment, you know, the bar is Mm going to keep raising every year. Okay, before we get to uh, and, and drill down on some are they in or are they out teams, pick one. You can only have one of these two defensemen, Alex Vlasic or Brock Faber. Shannon Goldman, who are you choosing? I'm choosing Brock Faber right now because there's a little bit more oomph behind his game for me. There's a little longer track record mm-hmm. of doing it. He's really impressed me as this like stabilizing force that the Wild never knew they needed. But I think Vlasic is going to make it more of a conversation the more he keeps playing at this pace. Okay, let's let's pick up the conversation then. One of the teams we're going to talk about here um, is Brock Faber's team. Uh, teams that are in versus teams that are out. Like at the beginning of the year, I think we we're all having a lot of fun talking about the Edmonton Oilers and could they really be out? Like this is not what we expected and things have turned around. I want to get to Edmonton if we have time with you in a couple of seconds. Um, but two out of the gate that I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, despite the fact that every time anyone asks Bill Guerin, um, you know, are you throwing in the white towel here? He keeps saying, no, no, rage, rage against the dying of the light, Dylan Thomas. Um things are looking bleak for the Minnesota Wild as they are looking bleak for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And if you're going to look for one specific play to say, this play is the Pittsburgh Penguins season, it's the Lawson Krause goal, the empty netter that Krause never shot the puck with, it's Chris Letang feeding it back to Malkin and the sloppy one-handed drag along the goal line that leads to the empty net goal. Pittsburgh and Minnesota in slash out question mark. Shayna. Pittsburgh, I'm going to say in. Um, I'm impressed despite Wiley. that goal. Yeah. 
their five on five play has been an issue through most of the season. They have had highs and lows. They came in bad, then they figured it out. They mm-hmm. made the right systematic tweaks that they needed to work with the, fen- the defensemen they actually have on their roster. It feels like they're figuring it out more consistently at five on five. What's going on on the power play? I can't explain to you. I don't know why it's broken. There's too much skill for it to be to, to produce the way it has. And I think sometimes that can be, it's a good problem to have to have a lot of skill, but it seems like nobody's figuring out who mm-hmm. should be the guy and how this should work. And that is something they're going to have to work on. But I think that they have the valuable core that you need to build a contender around. They have the high-end skill. You have Sidney Crosby having, in my opinion, an MVP caliber season. I feel like yeah. the pieces are better in place for Pittsburgh compared to Minnesota. And I look at Minnesota and I say, you were a flawed team coming into the season and you've only done more moves to keep yourself in that same stagnant, flawed position. You look at the contracts that they handed out early. Marcus Foligno, when I think he should have been a trade ship to try to clear up some cap space. And even Ryan Hartman to an extent, although that one doesn't bother me as much because they need the center help. It just feels like they're digging their heels in with the core and a supporting cast that isn't strong enough. Yes, they've had bad goaltending. There's problems in front of the blue paint. And they had the buzz of a new coaching change, and that worked for them. But you can see their numbers trending in the wrong direction on both sides. Spurgeon's not coming back this year. Mm -hmm. You get to a point where you say you need to step back and position yourself better for next year because you're just going to end up in the middle this year, which is where you end up every year. Have to ask you about the Islanders here. Um, we cannot go one step further in this conversation. You talk about you know the new the the new coach buzz or the dead cap bounce or however you want to describe it here. Uh, Patrick Waugh is now one and one. Uh, he beat the Dallas Stars. Well, the Islanders beat the Dallas Stars on the weekend last night. They <laughs> drop a tough one. Welcome back eight nil. Uh, drop a tough one to the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, you know we've talked a lot about you know where Patrick is going to impact this Islanders team, and we keep focusing on energy and intensity and emotion, etc. When you look at the Islanders now, and that's a team I believe geographically you're closest to. I mean, you get a full eyeball now of Patrick Wa and the Patrick Wa show. You are lucky. Um, just your thoughts on on where the Islanders can go here, and maybe more importantly. Even if they have playoff aspirations, given the reality of aging curves and you know the average age of this uh, this team, you know, do they have the horses to get there? I don't think they have the horses to get there yet. I think that the Islanders are in one of the trickiest positions because they bet on a core similar to the Wild, but they bet on a supporting cast. They have nine players with no movement or no trade clauses, which is outright poor management. There's no other way to slice it. There are contracts that are too long, too expensive, and too many clauses. And it really boxes the Islanders in. I don't think, I think the coaching change was necessary, right? I don't think Lane Lambert did a fantastic job. He could have gone two different paths. He could have just followed the Barry Trotz method and tried to replicate, you know, steer the ship that was already put in place for you, or you can try to break out and do your own thing. And they needed that, right? The defensive system that Trotz put in was excellent, but it did start suppressing their offense and they needed more offense. The problem is the offense to me underwhelms below the surface. I know they've had better results, um, but the defense fell apart and they rely on elite goaltending, which yes, they have, but it's not enough. So Mm -hmm. I I think that you look at this team and you go, do you have the roster to get there? No. I think that you have a good top line, and I think that you have three lines below that that are all above their depth by a degree. So I don't know how much Patrick Law can ge- like genuinely change that, right? That's the roster construction, and mm-hmm. I don't trust management to make the creative 
low risk, inexpensive moves to fix that because that has never been the MO. And I know that Lula Morello has a winning pedigree, mm. but I'm sorry, it was over 20 years ago. Uh, it, it's not what have you done, it's what have you done for me lately in this league. So I'm curious if Patrick Waugh can implement what he wants to this team, because I don't know if the roster is built to totally maximize his systematic approach. But on the other hand, I'm curious about how flexible he's going to be. We knew in Colorado he wasn't. He wanted his roster a certain way. He wanted his hand in management, handpicking the players that were on his roster as well. That's not going to happen here with Lula Morello, and it can't happen because of the mm. contract situation. So how does he adjust? Yes, he needs to bring the energy. He needs to get these guys playing a 60-minute game on a consistent basis. All of that's true. And just re-energizing the players is going to do a lot for them. But I do wonder what the ceiling is of what he can do with the roster that's constructed this way. Having said that, Shana, and I don't disagree, if there's anybody who can not so subtly encourage a player to waive his no trade, it's <laughs> Lou Lamorello. Um, let me ask about the Oilers. I mean, what a rip this is. 14-game uh, winning streak now. They defeat the Columbus Blue Jackets yesterday. Uh, Stuart Skinner himself on the 11-game rip as well, and we are all, you know, all had him either in Bakersfield or out of town at the beginning of the season. Uh, it's been an incredible turnaround. Um, it's been a weird ride all the way. I mean, we, we can all recall, I mean, we had a lot of conversations about, you know, the Jersey Tuck conspiracy. Did I ever talk to you about the Jersey Tuck conspiracy, Shana, with Connor McDavid? No. No, what's this? Oh, man, you'll love this one. So this is great. So <laughs> so we all think that Connor McDavid came back too early. Remember the Heritage Classic, but David comes back, and McDavid's always been, much like you know Wayne Gretzky before him, um, the, uh, the Jersey Tuck has always been a staple for Connor McDavid. Since I first saw him playing, yeah, I'm going to be that guy. Since I first saw him playing in the GTHL <laughs> with the Toronto Marlies, he's always been a Jersey Tuck guy. From the Marlies to the Otters to the Edmonton Oilers, he's always been a Jersey Tuck guy. But he comes back, and all of a sudden, Connor McDavid's not tucking his jersey anymore. And we start wondering, like, well, why, why would that be? Like, what's going on? And the theory was that he was wearing an extra piece of protective equipment to protect an injury, I don't know, like an oblique, I take your pick, I don't know. Um, and that's why he couldn't tuck in the jersey anymore. He kept it out because he was wearing added protection. And then all of a sudden, when he went to Lourdes and bathed in holy water and came back all healed, all of a sudden, the jersey was tucked again. And we saw the Connor McDavid of old. Like sometime at the end of the season... I have to get the answer. Someone's going to get the answer. I hope that I can get it as to what happened with the Jersey tuck and why the tuck went away. And was it to, dis to, 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 to disguise some extra equipment he was wearing to protect an injury? But nonetheless, it's been a wild ride all the way. <laughs> how do you look at the Oilers now? Like, how, like, listen, it's going to be tough to catch Vancouver. Like, holy smokes, what a season. But, like, how do you look at Edmonton now they're on this 14-game rip and show no signs of slowing down at all? Yeah, it's not that Connor McDavid is superstitious and untucked his jersey. It's everybody around him is, right? That's that's the key to the story. Um, but yes. no, you could see there there was something with his explosiveness that was off. And when you're a team like the Oilers that's built around Connor McDavid's success and Leandre Seidel's success, then, you know, you need them to be who they're expected to be. That's, that's the flaw of their roster, and it's the strength of their roster all in one. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they catch up because they've caught up a lot and it helps that other teams around them, like the Flames, are, you know, in and out of the mix. Uh, it helps that the Kings and the Golden Knights have had their struggles after such strong starts. And I think it's fine if they don't catch the mm -hmm. Canucks, right? 
it, I don't think that's a problem necessarily, as long as they make the playoffs and ideally we, they get home ice and everything like that, because we know teams love that. Um, to me, there are differences all over the ice since the coaching change. The easiest one is to say the goaltending, right? Stuart Skinner looks better. Before the coaching mm-hmm. change, according to Evolving Hockey, he yeah. allowed 7.6 goals above expected. That was second to worst in the league to only Philip Gustafson. Since the coaching change, he saved mm-hmm. 13.8 above expected, including 2.5 goals last night against Columbus. That's outstanding goaltending. But there's more to it. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at the first half of the season and we look at the first quarter of the season, really. Um, And we look at the adjustments that they had made with their defensive zone coverage and how lost players looked. And you, it wasn't as much that we saw them being the worst team in shots against. It's the shots that they allowed and the scoring chances they allowed were that daunting that nobody was going to stop them. Uh, Stuart Skinner was completely exposed, and then he didn't respond. He wasn't reliable to that workload that he faced. But since the coaching change, we've seen a number of upswings uh, and it starts with their defense. They've improved their expected goals against their top 10 in the league, and their actual goals is following through with that. They're a team that is better in limiting scoring chances. They're not allowing slot shots as often. They're not allowing rebound shots as often. Mm. So that's all great and wonderful. Then you have the five-on-five offense to match, and that's really important because they were creating chances in the before the coaching change. They weren't finishing those chances, and you've seen them not just finish their chances but pick up the pace even more offensively, and it's super impressive to me that they're doing all this. You know, the penalty kill has improved since the coaching change. The power play, though, is something we know to be a source of their offense consistently. Show me what you can do at five on five, because I know what you can do on the power play. Show me that you can survive without your power play carrying you. And that's exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The power play has been good, but not to the level that's expected based on the skill, based on the quality of chances that they're generating while on the advantage. So the fact that their five on five offense has picked up the pace as much as it has, the defense can match it and they have steady goaltending, this is the team we expected to see. So can they keep up this level? I, I think they can because over this win streak, it's not that they're getting complacent because they're winning and they're not improving along the way because so many teams go on these crazy streaks. They don't fix what's bubbling under the surface and then it all crashes down on them. So I think that's a really positive sign for them as well. Real quick, in the couple of moments that I have left with you, Sheena, and that is a very thorough answer, by the way, but we're used to that with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> before I before I, before I I wrap up with you, two, two things I want to ask. One, uh, I want to get an Australian Open update because you totally reconfigure your world and turn your world upside down to make sure you're up at stupid o'clock to, to watch everything. Uh, but two, which is a team that impresses you most so far right now, Jan 24, 1230 Eastern on a, on a Wednesday afternoon? Okay, so the update is that we're almost done with last night's match. Um, we are into the fourth set. I could not get ready for this before I watched the tie break in the third <laughs> set. So Alcaraz is still alive and we're okay. Right. We'll see how I feel in a couple hours. All right. Um, the team that impresses gotcha. me the most, the Oilers are up there. Honestly, the way that they've turned things around does impress me. But hmm. in an effort to be different, right, we don't want to just recite hmm. everything the same. I'm going to go Florida Panthers. The Panthers are like the Bruins of last year that we all counted out because of their key injuries. In the first couple games, we were proven right. Oliver Ackman Larson looked completely out of his depths. That defense was a wreck, and it didn't seem like something the goaltending of the offense could mask. And then they turned it around. They turned it around in a way that's so surprising to me that they were a top, I think it was top five defensive team at even strength, and the penalty kill was absolutely Mm -hmm. positively outstanding when Ekblad and Montour returned to the lineup, the fact that they managed the way that they did without them, to me, is all-star caliber all around. 
And now that you're going to see Matthew Kachuk get going, because the numbers were in his favor to start turning around that that low goal scoring pace that we saw from him. And you see the level that Barkov's playing. And Reinhardt, Reinhardt has been great on both ends of the ice. That team to Holy me is smokes. one of the most impressive contenders. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, uh, you have some love to spread for Sam Reinhardt, and uh, he's going to get his love at the end of the year. You know, it's like uh, I always laugh when athletes say, it's not about money, it's about respect. And I judge respect by money. He's getting both. He's getting the respect yeah. and he's getting the money at the end of the year. Um, Shannon, you're the best. Thanks for, listen, thanks for a couple of things. Coming on and off the top, handling a very, very sensitive subject. And two, thanks for being a better broadcaster than me and being able to transition from that very sensitive and emotionally heavy topic into a conversation about hockey. You are, as we say, come on the en français, as we say in French, la première étoile, the first star. Thanks as always, Shannon. You be good. Thanks for having me. Shannon Goldman, uh, the great Shannon Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. All right, uh, still to come on today's show, uh, we'll talk to Elliot Friedman at uh, the top of Hour 2. A number of things to get to with Elliot. uh, The story in the Globe and Mail about the five players uh, being asked to turn themselves in. Um, and also the story, and if, if you've listened to the podcast for a couple of years, you know, a couple of years in the last year, we did an interview with Ryan Smith and his desire to bring a hockey team to Utah. Um, and we'll talk about where that's at right now as he has put forward a, um, uh, a sort of, how, how shall we say it? He's put forward a uh, official declaration of interest, let's just say, uh, to bring a team to, to Utah, and the NHL has responded as well. We can all see where this one is going. Folks, is it going to be expansion or is it going to be relocation? I think you know the team we're thinking of. Uh, joining me in a couple of moments, so Matt Marchese, our senior producer and contributor here to this uh, program, Ryan Callahan, also joins uh, at the bottom of hour two. Listen, I know this is a really heavy one. It's a really tough time for a lot of people right now. Again, as I said off the top, spend some time today checking in on your friends, your loved ones, anyone in your orbit uh, who is either the victim of or has been touched by sexual assault. Please do them that favor. And that will take a break. More of the Merrick Show uh, across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, quick news update um, from the New Jersey Devils: uh, Michael McLeod and Cal Foot have been asked for and have been asked and been given um, a release from the team um, for as long as they need. Okay. Um, Elsewhere around the NHL, a number of intriguing games from last night. A story coming out of Utah with an expression of interest for an expansion team. Maybe a relocation. <clears throat> Arizona looking your direction. Um, from Ryan Smith and his group. That is the owner of the Utah Jazz. If you don't know, Elliot and I did a podcast with him last uh, season. You should probably, if you want to know a little bit more about this gentleman uh, and his background and his intentions for hockey, give that a listen. We might want to air part of that, maybe coming up on tomorrow's show. We'll we'll see where we get to. Uh, those are a couple of the stories going around the NHL. A number of intriguing games on the board tonight, and we'll get to that uh, with our man, Matt Marchese. Matty, how are you today, pal? I'm good, buddy. How are you? 
Uh, I'm good, man. Just it's just a, like an emotionally heavy day for all mm-hmm. the obvious reasons. Um, and again, encouraging people to to check in, it's just to send a quick like little, you know, hey, mental health check. How you doing today? Everything okay in your life? Just just do it. Uh, just do it to your um, uh, friends and, and acquaintances who uh, who have been uh, been victims themselves. Um, and that is the main overriding story of the day. Uh, information is still scarce. As we know, I think it's irresponsible at this point to join things together. I know you may say, well, Merrick, you know, common sense here, common sense. And like, uh, when it's a case like this, I think you take a sober pause and say, let's wait to see how the dominoes fall here. Any misstep can be awful for everybody involved. And yeah. Lord knows, Maddie. I step on my tongue quite often and have my entire career. So, um, what jumped out at you last night from uh, amongst the uh, amongst the games that you watched? Uh, well, I mean, is it is it chalk to say the Oilers and the fact that Stuart Skinner looks like a guy that could lead them no. to the promised land? And you know, the one thing, and I. I um, I had spec on, I think it was last week, last week or the week before. I don't know. They all kind of go together. Yeah. And the one thing that he talked about that was really intriguing to me about the Oilers is when they go into the third period and they haven't scored like three or four goals, they don't get worried now. And that's, that's kind of like this, this big shift that we've seen with the Oilers was, you know, they, part of it is because maybe the, you know, the way that they play, but also the confidence in the goaltender. Like that to me is the biggest reason yeah. why Edmonton can get to where they can get to and have that feeling is, you know, yes, they are getting secondary scoring. Like Warren Fogle has been really good over the course of the last seven games. He's got seven points, you know, Vander Kane scoring again. Zach Hyman's been great all year, all that stuff. But when you look at them going into, and it's this has been a constant throughout this winning streak is, they're not scoring two or three goals by the time the third period rolls around. And there's no panic in this group. I don't know if that is part of what Chris Knobloch has done or if it's part of the the maturation process with this whole group too. Uh, okay, a couple of things there. One, uh, whenever you say Warren Fogle, you have to say of St. Andrews College. Uh, <laughs> shout out Dave Manning running that great program. Uh, but two, you know, it's, it's interesting that you point that out because... We look at this team, and the natural comparison is always going to be to the 80s Oilers. Yeah. Okay. You know, the high-flying Oilers. You know, Glenn Sather loved how the Winnipeg Jets played in the WHA, and he was going to bring that to his team in the NHL, and he did. And it was spectacular to watch. Like, for the... Here's the difference that I see between these teams. I'm, I'm glad you got us down this avenue. Here's the difference I see between the 80s Oilers and this edition of the Oilers, who are incredibly impressive and were incredibly impressive again last night. 11-game winning streak now for Stu Skinner. Sorry, Grant Fuhrer. 14-game winning streak for the Edmonton Oilers. Sam Gagne has now been involved in two 14-game winning streaks, one with the Oilers and previous with uh, Columbus Blue Jackets, the team the Oilers beat last night. Um this year's Oilers, you're right. The thing that impresses us is how composed they are, and there's no panic. But the thing that I always admired, that I always loved about that 80s Oilers team, is whenever you scored on them, they almost they, they seemed like they were personally offended. Yeah. Like you had the nerve to score on us, and then they'd come back and pop in three really fast. Like, you know, the puck would get dumped in the Oilers zone. Fuhrer would stop and Coffey would pick it up over to Curry, over to Gretzky, and it was in. Or Gretzky to Curry and it was in. And that was it. The only question was, was Grant Fuhrer going to get an assist on the goal or did too many players touch it? But it's like, when you scored on them, they got 
angry at you. Yeah. And they seemed offended. Like it was a personal affront to them. This Oilers team that we're seeing on this streak, you score on them and they kind of go, yeah, no problem. Like they, they don't seem to be as, as angry as that 80s Oilers team was. And that's why, you know, that team has a real special place in my heart. It's like that Islanders dynasty has a real special place in my heart as well. But uh, it, it's an interesting comparison between the two because there is a definite chill vibe about this Oilers team, like, ah, score a couple on us, no problem. We got this. Third period's coming. We got this. They whereas the Oilers, the old Oilers were just like, man, we're pissed off. You may it was like Bill Bixby. It's like the incredible Hulk. Like, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. You scored on the Oilers in the eighties. They got angry. Yeah. That, the, was, that was them. This this streak has seen them allow three goals twice. So everything has been two or less. And those three goal games yeah. were at the beginning of this streak. And now you look at them and you know I, I, how do you beat them right now? Like, that's the big question here. Because when you have a team that is not only playing with a lot of confidence and getting goaltending, they, they're not rattled by anything. And that's the thing that earlier in the year, Jeff, they were rattled by a lot of little things that became big things. And that, to me, has been the most impressive thing. And now, when you look at how they're doing it, it's not... Connor and Leon just, you know, three points every night. That's not happening. Like, Leon had four the other night, and that's great, but it hasn't been their show, which I think is what's scary to the rest of the league is that, oh, boy, other guys are playing now. We really need to look out here. You know how you beat them? The same way the San Jose Sharks were able to beat the New York Rangers last night. Did you watch the overtime? Did you watch the entire sequence? I'm glad you asked that question because I'm trying to yes. figure out a way how I can get you to talk about San Jose and the New York Rangers. Did you watch the closing sequence? Yeah. Of of how Tomas Hurdle got that goal. It was it was insane. It was absolutely it was basketball. Like there you said, it was basketball on ice. Three three picks. <laughs> three picks by Jan Ruda. Blatant. The first one may may uh, I don't know but the, the first one is a band of jazz like mm, maybe okay I can look the other way on it it's not as bad as the second one yeah. on Alexi Lafreniere I'm like hold I was I was just expecting you to have like his, his arms crossed at that point and be wearing like a tank top and shorts and then the third one on Zabanajad which opened up all the ice for Ruda uh was maybe the most egregious out of all of them like you had three picks in about 10 seconds and you know me, I, I don't harp on I don't harp on officials at all. They get the toughest job in, in hockey, um, but not one of them called. But it, it made me think about that Detroit Red Wings team with Lidstrom and Datsuk and Zetterberg, you know, five and 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 forty and and thirteen. Like they were the masters of it, but they were subtle. Like if you look at the Detroit Red Wings of the heyday era with those Hall of Famers, like they were so good at, I don't know how you refer to it, skating picks, casual picks. No one was better than the Wings. And and they didn't just like block you picking like in basketball. It would be just a shade just to slow you down a step. Like they were the best. It was one of my favorite things about that Red Wings team because you could watch it and you'll be like – Oh yeah, it's a total pick, but it it's it's not quite interference. But you can tell that he's slowed this player. To, it was beautiful. It was a thing of beauty to watch. I know we look at the Red Wings and say, "Oh, puck possession, puck possession." Watch what they're doing. Watch what they're doing, hanging on to the puck. It was all the stuff away from the puck by creating these casual picks that was so brilliant about Detroit. But it was subtle. It was artistic. It was beautiful. 
Ruda was like a tornado in a trailer park. <laughs> the way he was picking Rangers, the way he was picking Rangers in that overtime. It was, I'm watching this. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I, I can tell you for a fact, Jeff, that there were Leaf fans up in arms after watching that this morning. Going, you didn't call that. But you called it in the play. You know that they were screaming at their televisions. Oh. So I, honestly, I was with some of the, and again, I, I don't like to harp on officials either. I did enough of that, you know, growing up. But now I look yeah, at it and say, player. the job is very hard. But in three on three, Jeff, there you can see everything. Yeah. Like, it's pretty obvious when something like that happens. I to- well, When I saw it, I was like, there's yeah. no way they couldn't call that. At least one of them. Again, the first one. Mulligan, sure. okay, it's... Like you can have a look. I, I tweeted it out this morning. Um, you can have a look at the first one and maybe say, eh, maybe just an awkward collision. Uh, give him a mulligan on that one. Play on, no autopsy, no foul. But Lafreniere and then the second Zibanejad pick, like, I'm sorry. Like, these are, like, the two most flagrant picks I've seen all season long, and it's in overtime where the stakes are the highest. It's not like it's, like, you know, five or six minutes into the first period. Like, you're freeing up that much ice for, like, Tomas Hurdle. He's going to score. Anyhow, uh, that was a uh, that, that was a, that was a, oh, a weird one last night. Hey, are you getting the uh, we're the Tampa Bay Lightning and we're here to tell you that we're back vibe right yeah. now? Like, I know the Flyers made it close yesterday, making it a 4-3, but then just, like, Kucherov, just too good. You know, three goals and an assist. He's, I keep going back and forth on, on MVPs, depending. Like, I am the worst for recency bias. I'll admit it. Like, right now, after watching that game, I'll tell you Kucherov deserves the MVP. Then I'm going to watch Colorado, and I'll come back here on the air, and I'll tell you that Nathan McKinnon deserves the Hart Trophy. Like, I'm just the worst when it comes to that. But uh, what are you seeing out of Tampa right now? It seems like the Nikita Kucherov personal revenge tour. Oh, you forgot how good I was? Let me remind you. That's what it kind of feels like right now. Because yeah. it's like every night is like yeah. Kucherov's got a goal or an assist or three assists or whatever. He's just lighting up the score sheet. Like He's got 80 points. He's got 80 points, and you look at him yeah. and say – that's just we we do tend to forget about Nikita Kucherov sometimes like you look at the scoring race right now Nikita Kucherov has 80 Nathan McKinnon has 77 the next closest guy who's also having a fantastic year is David Pasternak with 67 he's 13 behind first place and 10 behind second so I I think this is it does really feel like a two-horse race right now but Kucherov is just you know you talked yesterday you and I about the play with him and Hedman in the zone, it was basically poetry on ice. Oh, the, the, the Detroit game Saturday. Yeah, that was yeah. fantastic. And, and so I look at this player, and the things that he does with and without the puck is marvelous. Like, we forget how great yeah. this guy is, and then he sends us a quick reminder saying, hold on a second, I haven't gone anywhere. He's awesome. I love watching him. And he's, and he's a pain. I love that he's nasty. I love he's grumpy. I love everything about Nikita Kucherov. <laughs> Oh, he is grumpy. Yeah, and I love it. That's uh, again, like I keep telling you, Maddie. Like I don't know, it's just I'm just getting older, but I have an appreciation for grumpy people. That's why I get along so well with Berkey now. <laughs> Man, Berkey. Well, I didn't hate Brian, but Brian hated me for a long. We didn't talk for like three or four years, um, but now we're like best buddies, and I talk to him all the time. And I just love it when he's cranky. I love cranky people, so I love Nikita Kucherov. But you're right. But the thing about that that play on Saturday in the Detroit game is Kucherov is so dangerous. Did you see what all the Red Wings players did when he got that feed from Hedman before Hedman went and got lost and then got open ice? Yeah, they all looked at him. They all followed him. Yeah. <laughs> they all looked at him. It's like everybody's got to be on him. He's just like, oh, candy baby, candy baby, candy baby, and just slides it over to Hedman. Yep. Kind of like, 
You see Daniel Sprong last night and that pass to Alex DeBrinkett? Yeah. You know, all the people out there say, oh, all Sprong is good for is a shot. He just got the shot. That's it. He's just be like Martin Frick. He's just got the shot. Like, yeah, that's all he is. Have a look at that pass from last night to DeBrinkett. And DeBrinkett, again, like a great play by him to get to quiet ice and almost take himself out of the play and then dart into a spot where as soon as he gets that pass, it's off his stick. I'm forever fascinated. I mean, Brett Hall was the master of that. Brett Hall used to always have the great line too, Maddie. Uh, sometimes the best way to be in the play is to be out of the play. Yep. And you saw that with DeBrinkett. You saw that with Hedman on Saturday. You've seen plenty of examples of that. Just something I'll pull out here for the show. And la- yeah, last night you saw that with DeBrinkett. You always saw it with Brett Hall. And you saw it with, of all people, the giraffe on Tampa. Victor Hedman. All right. Uh, time now for Line Change. Presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Uh, what are you thinking about tonight, Matty? Oh, it just happens to be that all-Canadian matchup between the Jets and the Maple Leafs. This one in Toronto. The puck line is Leafs minus one and a half. The total has gone over in five of the last six between these two in Toronto. The Leafs have won five of the last seven against Winnipeg. And the Jets are 11-3 and three in their last 14 against the Eastern Conference. Winnipeg Jets are fascinating. So Elliot and I sat down yesterday after this program uh, over to the the Jets hotel and and uh, and sat down and, and talked to Rick Bonus. That's coming up on a on an edition of Thirty Two Thoughts soon. And one of the things this is fascinating. One of the things that we talked about, you know, I I went at Rick about uh, you know how much do you hate the Minnesota Wild, whether it was last year and the feud with Dean Evason or this year with Ryan Hartman and uh, and Cole Perfetti and all of that. And Elliot brought up a really, really good point. We'll talk to Elliot about this coming up in an hour or two. Elliot brought up a really good point, and and Rick certainly agreed with him. He said, uh, you know, low-key, the Jets and the Maple Leafs have a real great rivalry slash feud. Like, you remember that video of all the Jets players after beating the Toronto Maple Leafs in the dressing room, and they're, oh, nothing better than beating the Maple Leafs and all. You'll find that with any team that has a lot of Ontario-born players on it. Or maybe not necessarily Ontario-born players, just players in general uh, who tend to hate the Toronto Maple Leafs. And the Winnipeg Jets are right up near the top of that list. Even though these two teams don't play each other very often, thank you very much, and never really did, there's always been something between the uh, between the Winnipeg Jets and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Maddie will call it the Olchek Cup. How about that? I like it. Uh, that was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Okay, that's hour one. Uh, thanks for listening. Hour two is coming up on the horizon across the Sportsnet Radio Network and simulcast on Sportsnet 360. We'll talk to Elliot Friedman in a couple of moments from 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada. More on the stories of the day and also Ryan Callahan stops by to around the NHL with the former NHLer turned great broadcaster. We're back in a moment. More of the Merrick show. Hour left. Keep it going. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And don't look now, but your boy Jeff's favorite hockey player is back on the ice. Gabriel Andeskog on the ice for the Colorado Avalanche this morning. I'm just saying. I don't think any of us expect him back until sometime in the playoffs. But nonetheless, Gabriel Andeskog poised to return to the NHL, comma, one day. Actually, it's not true. He's my second favorite hockey player. 
My first hockey player, my first favorite hockey player joins me next. Here's Ryan Callahan from ESPN, former member of the Guelph Storm. How about that one, Ryan? I like it, Jeff. You started off there about Landeskog. I got excited, then uh, he had to backpedal quickly. I realized I was on the phone. So, <laughs> <laughs> my se- my second favorite player is Gabriel Landeskog. My first. Yeah. Well, listen, man. I, good recovery. I, I, first time I saw you was when you were when you were playing. I know they had nice, nice. I stuck the landing. Hey, um, I used to watch you play with two Dowdy. Dave Barr would have been the coach of that Guelph Storm team. Used to watch you two guys just rip it up. And you know, it's it's interesting. I've talked to uh, a couple of different scouts who have mentioned the same thing to me. You really got a sense of how great Dowdy was. Not necessarily when you watched him from like the middle of the ice or the stands, but you know, some scouts have said you know when you watch Dowdy from behind the net and you watch him grab the puck behind the net and stop, and you sort of have a look at you know what his options are, and then you watch the plays that he would make when he come out from from behind the net it was I mean listen you had a bird's eye view for all of it you're on the ice for a lot of it as well you know what was it like playing with Doughty back in junior yeah he was, he was such a special player right right from day one really I remember you know I've told this story before I remember um day two or three a camper you know and Doughty's there and and I called my dad and I'm talking to my dad and you know we're just chatting about camp how camp's going everything else and I said I'll tell you what, there's this kid, Drew Doughty, that we drafted, D-man, who is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> I, 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 I've been on the ice with him maybe three times, and it's remarkable what he can do with the puck, with his vision as a you know 16-year-old coming in. And, you know, me and my dad still laugh about it now, and he's like, hey, maybe you should have been a scout, not a player. But, um, but yeah, you could, tell, you could tell right away. He's just... <laughs> Just a special talent, and um, I had a lot of fun being, you know, being a teammate of his too. I mean, it, everybody knows how he is off the ice. He's always chatting, right? Never, never shuts up as a oh, yeah. as a player on the ice and off the ice. So you can imagine me as a, you know, an old guy and him being a rookie. Um, you know, we'd go back and forth quite a bit about it, but uh, but yeah, he was a good good friend and an unreal teammate. Yeah, just a special, special player. Um, speaking of special, special players, Nikita Kucherov. Um, so Saturday in that game, Tampa against the Detroit Red Wings, you know, Kucherov has a way of just drawing attention. And I can understand why. I was, th- I was talking about this in hour one, Ryan. You know, when Nikita Kucherov has the puck, if you're the defending team, you can't help but instinctively look at Nikita Kucherov because he's a threat, a major threat. He steps over the blue line, he is a threat. So all the attention goes to Kucherov. And somehow Victor Hedman is allowed to hide as much as you can hide someone who's six foot six, six foot seven. Hedman hides. All the attention goes to Kucherov. He slides it over to Hedman. Hedman scores. It's a thing of beauty. You know, you were up close and personal to watch that dynamic. You're up close and personal to watch him. You know, fig slap shots and send it into the bumper position yeah. uh, for tap in goals. Three goals last night for Kucherov. Adds an assist. Four point nights. I mean, you've seen him. You've played with him. Um, if you want, if you want to talk about the player, that's great. I have a love for grumpy people in general, so I love Nikita Kucherov <laughs> even more because I love grumps. Uh, when I say the name Nikita Kucherov, what comes to your mind right away? Yeah, it actually, you know, it makes me smile because I remember obviously he was a rookie when I when I got traded there. He was getting called up and down, right? And John Cooper walked me in the room. Yeah. Nobody was in the room when I first got traded, and he said, "You're going to be playing with Valtteri Filppula." And this kid, Nikita Kucherov, is going to be on your wing. I think he's going to be a really good player, you know, a special talent. And I knew nothing about him, right? I, I, at the time, I had, I had no clue. And, um, you know, to see him, I think what has impressed me the most is just seeing him grow, right? Seeing him mature, right? You knew he had a lot of skill and talent, but I think he just matured as a person yeah. on and off the ice. Um, if you remember those first couple of years, you know, he had, you know, some benchings, a little bit of healthy scratching going on, you know, early, real early oh, on yeah. his first year there. Um and you could almost see, like, 
you know, he, he, it upset him, right? And he didn't know how to hide that or, mm-hmm. or how to cha- channel it, I should say, not hide it, but how to channel that, right, in the right direction. And, um, you know, he, he wore it on his, you know, he wore it. You, you saw when he was upset, when things weren't going well, slamming his stick, uh, grumpy and, and everything else, as you say. But then he found a way to, I think, mature as a hockey player, realizing what he can do out there. His confidence grew. And then off mm-hmm. the ice as well, he, he matured and, and realized that, you know, with how, how his ability on the ice, that he was such an influence in that room that guys looked up to him right away. You know, he made such an impact on the game. He became an immediate leader in that room because, you know what, we needed a goal or something yeah. to happen. Everybody looked at Cooch and said, you know, we need you to do this. We don't need you to be in a bad mood or grumpy. We need you to, you know, kind of get that pissed <laughs> off feeling and, and get get on the ice and, and score a goal, you know. So um, to see him grow as, uh, you know, a person on and off the ice, I think that's what, you know, I think most about Cooch and then, you know, with those guys playing together, you talk about point in the bumper, you know, and headman, and they've played together Stamkos. Those guys have played together for so long. It's like by the end of it, even when I was there, yeah. they didn't even need to talk much on the ice. They knew exactly where each other were, were especially on the power play, the way that's run. Um, yeah, it's and they're, and they're still doing it, right? And they're still getting it done. Two Stanley Cup later, three Stanley Cup finals. Um, yeah, it's impressive. Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame awaits uh, a lot of these players yeah, as well. No I want to ask you, Ryan, about I, I want to ask you about picks. Okay, I want to ask you about picks, um, not like draft picks, but like setting picks on the ice. Elliot and I were just talking mm-hmm. about that San Jose New York Ranger game last night in overtime, and Jan Ruda, I, holy smokes, like he should be playing on the G State Warriors. Like he sets three picks, <laughs> two on Zabanajad, one one, you know, one on Alexi Lafreniere. Hurdle ends up scoring. I don't know how the Rangers didn't just explode at that point, but yep. it made me think back about the Detroit Red Wings who with that's a Gonzetterberg, like they were the masters yeah. at setting, you know, just casual picks, just slow you down a little bit. And the other team that's always been really good at that and still to this day are your Tampa Bay Lightning. Can you talk to us a yeah. little bit about the art of setting a pick without getting an interference call? It's really, to me, it's one of the great arts of the game. Technically it's interference, but if like, you know, mm-hmm. like the the line that you can't cross. Like I'm, I'm doing a bad job of setting this up, but I think you know what I'm going for. Last no, night, Ruda yeah. was like obvious. Like that, those are obvious picks. But how do you do it, and how did Tampa do it, and how does Tampa do it now without getting called? Yeah, no, it's, it's funny you kind of bring up those Detroit teams, right? And um, my first couple of years in Tampa, we played Detroit under under um, you know, and the first. I think it was the first two years I was there, we played them in the first round. And, and we remembered even then after, you know, Zetterberg and them were gone, they still kind of had that style where they would be hard yeah. to get on the four check in the neutral. And they'd always get a little piece of you. They'd always nick you. Like you always had to work and battle for your ice. And I remember the guys in the room, Coop, everybody talking about it. Like, you know, we got to work through this stuff. And we, we almost learned from them in a way. We realized how hard it was to play against huh. them and how difficult they made the game that, I think we started to adapt it into our own game. And I think how you do it is you've got to get to that piece of ice before that player is there, almost anticipating where that player is going to be. And if you're in that piece of ice and he has to go through you or around you, if you're already there, you're not going to get called for a penalty. And um, I think, you know, Ruda's situation last night, maybe it was a little different than that, as you said, but <laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the art of it is, you know, how can you get a piece of somebody without, you know, fully getting all of them and, you know, and it's funny too. It's everybody in face-offs is a big thing too, is where you see it. I think the most, um, you know, where it's not mm. called, where you, where you can throw those kind of those legal picks where you, you kind of run your route. Yeah. If you're a receiver in football, if you're running your route, 
Um, you know, you usually get a little piece of the defender early, and that's kind of the same thing on faceoffs. But I just remember playing those Detroit teams in those playoffs, you know, those first two rounds of the playoffs when I was with uh, with Tampa. And anywhere on the ice, they always seem to be get a little piece of you, slow you down. It's just a hard game to play against, yeah. and and I think I think Tampa took a little bit of that from that. I remember we learned like, man, this is this is miserable. Like you know, you like you got to work for every inch of the ice. There's no free pass anywhere out here. So um, there's definitely an art yeah. to it, and it's hard to play against too. Uh, it, it seems like the best t- teams do it, and there's like that distinction between setting a pick and just shading a player. Like, sh- like when you yep. shade a player, like you're not going to get called. Like, a, a fish- like, you know, right? Like officials will look at it and say, "Ah, I'm not going to call that interference. Ah, it just, ah, it just shades them a little bit. Yeah, that's fine." But to yep. your point, if you do it enough, and enough players are doing it, a you're slowing down the game, and b you're giving yourself a major. Uh, major, major advantage here. Um, let let me think, ask you about you the big about, story from the weekend. Sorry, one more thing. Sorry, one more thing on that. Like you think yeah, about cool. it. I mean, what, what are all these skilled players want? They want time and they want space, right? So all of a sudden you got a skilled yep. D-man or a skilled forward and you throw a little pick and it's maybe a half a second. You slow a guy up, but it's giving them that extra half a second to a second to make that extra decision, to give them that extra time in that space. Then all of a sudden that, you know, that little innocent pick or rub out where it doesn't, you know, looks like affecting the game. All of a sudden, now your skill guy's got an extra second to make a play. And, you know, remember those Detroit teams, how much skill there was on those teams. And then, you know, you look at our Tampa team, yeah. the Tampa team now, and, yeah. and that's all those guys need is that a little extra second. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're either off the ice or they're making a pass. So it's, uh, it's a big part of the game. You know who's great at it, too, now that I think about it? Jacob Slavin in Carolina. Slavin mm-hmm. is is so fan. I mean, he's, he's so great at reading plays to begin with. But I mean, how many times have you seen Slavin do exactly what you're talking about and buying his teammates, whether it's for uh, an easy escape out of the zone, uh, whether it's you know to uh, extend the shift in the offensive zone, just do exactly what we're talking about again, like. We always talk about Jacob Slavin, and he's not showing up on the game sheet at the end of the day, but all the players will look at Slavin and go, like, that's the guy. That's the guy you should be talking about. What he does isn't going to show up in the boxcar numbers, but what that but what that guy does helps you win games, game in and game out. Hey, do you, do you have a thought on what we're seeing from the Edmonton Oilers right now? 14 wins in a row. Stu Skinner himself has, has 11. Uh, Sam Gagne's now been part of two 14-game win streaks, one with Columbus previously and now one with the Edmonton Oilers. And ironically enough, they beat the Columbus Blue Jackets to get to game number 14. Like, you've been part of teams like this before where you're just like, you're in this groove and you feel like there's no way you can lose a hockey game. Do you have a thought on the Oilers right now? Yeah, it's it's impressive what they're doing, and I've never been to a you know a run like this before. But you know, without looking, I've probably been a, you know in a seven gamer and an eight gamer like that. And I've always noticed yeah. towards the end of them, and, and people talk about it too. I mean, everybody says it like your game starts to slip a little bit, right? And then you start winning some games you're not supposed to win to get to that seventh or eighth you know That's win. It. But what's impressed me is with this Edmonton team is. I don't see them slipping, you know, and I, I don't know the number exactly. I think it's, what is it? They've been up two or less goals and, you know, nine straight or eight straight. So it's not like they're yep. outscoring their opponents at the end of these games and, you know, they're holding on to games and it's just impressive. Like Stuart Skinner has been a lot better. There's no question about that, but without the defense in front of them and a commitment to, to playing in their own end, it doesn't matter what goal you have in that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Vasilevsky or, you know, whoever it is, yeah. if you're not committed to the defense, you're, you know, you're not going to have two goals or less a game. You know, and Stuart Skinner obviously has been a lot better, but I've just been impressed by this team. It almost seems like, you know, obviously this coaching change knob block came in and it's almost seemed like they flipped the switch to realize like, 
okay, like, you know, we have enough firepower on this team that we can score, but we got we to gotta learn to defend. We got to help our goalie out. We got to help our D out. Um, you know, then health was a big yeah. thing. McDavid, Ekholm, um, you know, was banged up there a little bit. But for me, it's in, you know, I keep going back to my playing days, but like when I was in Tampa, we didn't have success until we realized that we had to defend. We had to stop turning the puck over and we had to worry about our own end. And that's when we started to have success in the playoffs and, and in the regular season as well. And, you know, we had a stud in Vasilevsky in that. So, you know, unless you're, unless you're defending, you're, you have no chance. And I think they've, they've figured that out now. And I mean, with the amount of skill they have up front, um, you know, all they need is two or three a game to, to score and they win the game. That's, that's impressive. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that with uh, with your time in Tampa. There, there's one thing, um, there's one thing that I always found. This is going to sound weird, Ryan. That I found both beautiful and frustrating at the same time with your Tampa team, and that was you guys were in love with the extra pass because you could make it. Like how many times <laughs> yeah. was there with that team? Like, okay, yeah, just rip it. Oh no, there's another pass. It's beautiful. Like it's gorgeous, but there was like a Harlem Globetrotters element about it. It's like, okay, yeah. we get it guys. You can fire it around. Like it's awesome to watch. <laughs> Anybody want to shoot here? <laughs> like yeah, what, what did could, Cooper could you say to you guys me, at that you, time? Cause it must have been frustrating. Yeah, you imagine me on the bench, <laughs> like, you know, a guy who, you know, my style of game, right? I'm, I'm not overpassing this. I'm on the bench just pulling my hair out. I'm like, guys, we have three empty nets there that you guys have just passed up, and now we have no chance that net. So, um, yeah, yeah, and that's one thing. They're always trying to make that extra play to, to get in the zone, turn the puck over. Like you know, you're, you're just like, I'd be sitting on the bench. Yeah. Like, Man, the amount of skill these guys have. But can we please just try to win a game two to one or two to nothing here? Um, but yeah, Coop, I mean, Coop tried to drill it in us. Like, I mean, that was a constant conversation of, you know, managing the puck, you know, when to do things, and and. And rightfully so, that's when we started to have success is when we, you know, started to, to manage yeah. the puck more, not overpass it, shoot the puck, you know. And then obviously once I left, they, you know, they go on to, you know, win two Stanley Cups. So, like, but that was the recipe, right? I mean, you know, those Stanley Cup runs, yeah. they defended hard. You know, they defended really hard. And then they managed the puck well. They they learned to win games 2-0, 2-1, 3-1. Um, and then if games started to get in that crazy, you know, high-scoring game, they obviously had no issue doing that either yeah. with the amount of skill they had. So, I don't know. I, I look at that, and, and I see Edmonton doing that as well. I think Toronto falls into that as well. Um, you know, trying to learn how to win in different ways, I think, is uh, is so important, especially when you get to the postseason. I got about sixty seconds for this, but you, you, you mentioned learning how to defend. If you can give me sixty seconds on it, one of the things that I've tried to bring to people's attention, as much as we put a premium on skill and flashiness and oh, dueling Michigans and all that. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, you look at the Stanley Cup winners, Vegas, uh, Colorado, Tampa, uh, St. Louis. What do they all have in common? They could all defend. Like at the end of yeah. all of it, like you keep saying, like in a lot of ways, I know hockey's kind of a simple game. You need to be able to defend. Getting there is one thing, but if you want to win the whole thing, you need to defend. Do you have 60 seconds on that? Yeah, there's no question. And I think it's a, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, you see these teams that win and you see these teams that have so much regular season success, even some postseason success with, you know, going offense, trying to score goals. But those teams at the end always, you know, have a core of their goals against is usually really good and they know how to defend and they know yeah. game management, I think is another thing that is so huge. It's not talked about enough is, you know what, we're up to nothing. We don't need to go up three, nothing. You know, it's, you know, when do I chip the puck in? When do I chip the puck out? When do I make that extra pass? And that's all game management. And, you know, you get in those high-pressure situations in the playoffs. I think it's the teams that, 
have been there before and have been in that situation and the teams that know how to, you know, when to, when to pack it in and when to make the simple play. And, uh, you know, with all these Michigans and everything else that you're talking about, I love and watching them and everything else, but I I don't think game management and hockey awareness is taught enough now at a younger age cutting up because you see these kids come in and some of these guys come in, they all skill in the world, but, um, their hockey sense maybe isn't where it, it could be. Um, but I could go on for that forever. So, that's a that's that's longer than a sixty second answer. <laughs> it's a, it's okay. It's thorough. It's why I have you on. You're great, uh, Ryan. Thanks as always for stopping by. Much appreciated, pal. Any, anytime, Jeff. Love being on. Ryan Callahan, the great Ryan Callahan from ESPN. Thanks to everyone who participated today. Uh, Ryan Callahan, Elliot Friedman, Matt Marchese, Shannon Goldman, as well. Uh, our crew, David Sis, Lance Kennedy, Jen Rolnick, as well. And again, as we mentioned off the top, this is a really heavy time right now in hockey. Um, Take care of the people around you. Mental health checks as well. Check in on people, specifically those who have been victims of or know people who have been the victims of sexual assault. Take care of each other.